Hello, friends. It has been a long time. I'm not going to go into details about the cause of the delay of this podcast. Uh, it's not that interesting. And I want to get on with this episode. But the headline is, I was fighting with some unusually strong, but otherwise unextraordinary creative demons. Now, in the gap, some of you have clamored at me about when this next episode is coming, and I deeply appreciate that encouragement. Thank you. I'm hoping to stay in more of a groove going forward, but if you notice that you are missing an episode, please clamor away. In the meantime, let us rejoice, for a new podcast day is here. Today's episode is a conversation with my friend Christiane Pelmas. Christiane is a teacher and mentor in the realms of the erotic, ecology, ethics, soul, myth, sexuality, and intimacy. Among many things, she's the founder of the Institute for Erotic Intelligence and the Verdant Collective. She's also a leader of community here in Colorado in a beautiful, organic, grassroots kind of way. A lot of the above, we don't actually talk that much about today. What we do talk about is Christiane's wild and fun transformational origin story, as well as the power of telling stories for healing, the dangers of materialism, and more. I had a great time in this conversation, and I wish you at least as great a time listening. Now, here is Christiane Pelmas. Yeah, the wind has been. The last time we talked, it was the crazy snow. Yeah, and then today it's like the wind. I thought about that. It's it's kind of unbearable, really. I'm a big enemy of the wind. If of all the <laughs> weathers, I feel like the wind is just like it. Just is annoying. It oh. sucks your life out of your bones. There's a oh whole yeah. And it's. I mean, this is so serious. The the from here because you know the view I have the mountains are actually occluded by sand in the air. Oh my God. There's actually just a dust storm. That is horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Really I, I, there were moments last night I, I, where I, I was driving and I could see dust in people's headlights. Them, yeah. It was like, oh, that stuff is just like flying You're around. Right? We're breathing that. Yes. yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, into our brains. Yeah, well, hopefully not. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But I haven't I haven't really been outside today and I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> no, this is not a day to go outside. There's like there's one area that I definitely want to ask you about, but for some reason I'm not gonna start that. <laughs> I've gonna so because what what I'm gonna start is with um what's like lighting you up or what's kind of has your attention today? So uh, a couple of things actually, because I think I'm still I still have your the intro uh, conversation you had to orient all of us listeners to your to this podcast to get us into the terrain and and this this um, tension you set up between the between between science and spirit and so well let me just uh, I'll just cut right to the <laughs> right to the punchline and say that I I I think I believe that. The singularly mechanistic science scientific focus 
I'm going to say this is is actually a the singularly focused mm -hmm. mechanistic scientific which you do a really beautiful job of dramatizing in your conversation with yourself. Mm. I actually think it's a it's a function of trauma. Mm. And I really I mean that's a huge I don't know, it seems like a huge thing to say because our culture, our society is based on it really has built its house on this mechanistic scientific view of the world and and I actually think it's a a function of an outcropping of trauma or an expression of trauma because I see trauma as a rupture in belonging. And the mechanistic scientific view just seems like it, it is a, um, it's an orphaned experience of the world that mm. reduces it to something that's very, that imagines it, a thing can be known by watching and measuring. And so, so actually what is really on my mind in this, this today and yesterday and is the role of the witness. And cause we're in Boulder and, you know, it seems appropriate. I, I actually tossed the word sacred in front of witness mm. and the role of the sacred witness. So what actually has me lit up right now is, is really contemplating the ecological function of the witness. Mm. I was reading Brian Swim, who's, I don't know if you know him, um, you might really appreciate him in one way, but he's a, I'll say he's a student of, of Thomas Berry. So he's in that ecological Ecozoic kind of world, mm -hmm. um, and he pointed out that for billions of years the Earth existed without eyes, <laughs> and it just went about its evolving without without experiencing being seen or seeing. Mm. And some four hundred and fifty million years ago, which is like a drop in the bucket, eyes emerged, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the world experienced itself being seen and saw itself being seen mm -hmm. and 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 to me that feels like a monumental moment in the unfolding of the world and it also happens to correspond with all sorts of extraordinary diversity i mean extra just extraordinary diversity in, in the flora and fauna so so yeah so this might not be where you were imagining i would go at all but what's really <laughs> turning me on now is like what what is the it, it's sort of like another version part two of if a, tr a tree falls in the forest and no one mm. is there to hear it doesn't make a sound is that how that goes something, something like, like that, that. Yeah, yeah. it's like if, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to see it does it exist mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's what i'm chewing on these days i love it i love it i no, i was not quite expecting this but it's absolutely <laughs> delightful to me i want to do you know what that first organism that developed eyes does does he talk about the the what kind of a creature it was? Well, it would have been a water dwelling creature. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but right. I have no idea. I mean, it probably very you know, and it was probably like one eye, you know, not right. even two. Right. <laughs> you had to right. start start small. Some fishy thing, yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I love that. There's there were multiple times in what you just said that I thought of Alan Watts, who's mm. kind of just someone that you know was a a, a big influence on me. I'll do both references, but I'll start with the more recent one, which is like, it, it was from him that I got the first understanding of like, the fact that we see the world and we perceive the world. Let me say it another way. The fact that we are conscious demonstrates that consciousness is a part of the world. Uh-huh. 
and that we are the organs of perception of the universe. Like that, you know, the universe is this. If we, if we even imagine, like this is the kind of the story you're telling of, like the universe being this organism which is evolving over billions and billions of years, takes billions and billions of years, and it finally grows this this organ which can actually take it all in. Yes. Right? Yes. And and go, you know, and I think like those fishy things with the singular eye were the first <laughs> things to like take it in. And mm -hmm. then we are really the first things that, that humanity, which I and, you know, I think there's it's slightly contentious to single out humanity as being special case. And I, I'm curious if you want to fight me on that, we can fight. Um, but I but to me, humanity has a unique position in the we're the ones that that not only perceive, but can comprehend that we are perceiving like or, exactly like there's this extra level of like the we're not just having an experience but yes we're, we're like, experiencing ourselves having that experience right and it right. and it maybe has gone a little overboard these days but, <laughs> I mean, yeah i mean that's the 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 yes yes so exactly we have an, a seemingly infinite capacity to experience ourselves experiencing Mm -hmm. especially in boulder we like to really <laughs> experience ourselves experiencing right. at a coffee shop so maybe well it's interesting because you kind of started out just like i'm i'm i want to leap to the fence of the boulderians but also i'm like no, it's fair enough it, it's fair cop it's interesting because you you were talking about the witness as where, where i thought you were going with the witness thing was like uh opposing the witness with like the participant Ah, okay. No, well, what I, what I, we could do that. And I haven't done that yet. So that would be, that would be exciting. What I have done is oppose the witness to the watcher. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just started to piece out what current society has done to the witness. Um, and, and, you know, really turned it into this extraordinary, we've really turned watching into the thing that is driving capitalism now mm. so that's driving our economy is is the is catching the gaze of a person for 10 seconds or maybe even three seconds and mm -hmm. and that we've that that if we've that, that you know on one end of the spectrum there's the there's the witness or the sacred witness which in my traveling with this with this idea and making all the connections really we can take it further um, because Brian Swim is talking about, as he talks about what it's like to, what was it like for the earth to all of a sudden be seen and then to realize that certain creatures, and I would say humans potentially are, are at, the, at the pinnacle of this, certain creatures developed to be, to see with multiple senses. You know, mm -hmm. to, to really perceive with multiple senses so that it's an entire, it's an embodied experience. Witnessing is an embodied experience, which really makes us something like somatic stenographers, something like mm. we could be the ones to be not just measuring the world, but experiencing the world as we, as we see it, you know, being mm. shaped and impacted and and evolved ourselves simply by experience by witnessing the world mm. and how far a cry that that is from how far a cry watching is from witnessing and just what are the constituent parts of each of those 
both of those activities. So that's where I went. Yeah, I love it. I I have two threads already that I so I'm gonna not including the one that I came in to talk about, but that's great. Um, so <laughs> I want to just go back and 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 catch the last one way back at the beginning of the of when we were talking. You talked about science as being this kind of the trauma piece. Like I don't want to lose track of that because I think that's really interesting and the and the idea of science as a or the kind of fixation on science as a as an expression of a loss of belonging. It's interesting because it's like, there's like almost like a cop before the horse. Like I've never thought of it in that direction. Like rather than thinking a, an, a consequence of the natural activity of science is that we, you know, this is a kind of Nietzschean thing that like mm -hmm. we find ourselves in this valueless, cold, empty place that where we, there's no belonging in the universe. But to almost reverse that a little bit and say, you know, there's this phenomena when you are traumatized that you go and seek out experiences which recreate that original trauma, you know, and the why that we do that is an interesting question. But like, it's pretty well established that we do do that. Yes. And so almost to look at science as like a way of re- capitulating the original trauma of a loss of belonging yes, and then kind of deifying and mm -hmm. then making it like God mm -hmm. and saying, you know, which I think is also something traumatized people do. Yes. Both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. To make sense of a, to make, to make order in what, you know, what becomes a very terrifying universe if we don't experience our belonging. Right random and terrifying it's funny because one of the responses i've had from the podcast is people saying i experience enchantment within science and so there's a whole conversation about that that's also absolutely. running in my head right and i and i think that yeah absolutely enchantment within science isn't that science used for good right when it opens up the doors of of miracle rather than you know close them and file them away alphabetically and for me, I do experience if I, if I am, if I get on that train, it is a hopeless worldview. Which train? The train of not of being enchanted by science. No, the train of the fixation, right? Like that kind of traumatized, like commitment. I can't remember the way you described it at the beginning, but, but the fixation on, on the purely scientific well, yeah, the, the very, that mechanistic, scientific, yes. yeah, causal. There's a, a great, I just got this from James Hillman, and I forget the Latin, but he had some Latin. The idea of what he was talking about is viewing the world and everything in the world as self-causing, hmm. so that rather than looking at each thing as being the consequence of a chain of cause and effects, mm -hmm we look at things as being self-causing and he was kind of in the domain of psychotherapy talking about like we want to blame our parents and say mm -hmm. that the reason we have this neurosis is because of what happened to us in the past but rather to to experience that whatever it is as being its own entity its own energy with its own reason for being which is yeah. not a, a consequence of something else yes and i wouldn't keep those two as separate and I don't remember if James, I would be surprised if James Hellman really did keep those as separate. Yeah, I mean, that that just is the the foundation of an animist framework that everything has its own unfolding, that everything's ensouled and 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 therefore it has its own story. And but things are co-arising. Things mm -hmm. are co-emergent. And 
each moment, a different thing is going to happen depending on who, who is participating. You know, you and I could have this conversation and we can turn around and have this very conversation with somebody else and a very different thing would happen. And so it feels to me very important that it's a, that it's a both and that mm -hmm. the, another word for that in the, I don't know who's, who, whose phrase this is, but autonomous and interdependent, autonomous and interdependent is a big, a big phrase now for in the consent culture. That makes me think of, are you, a, have you read Ken Wilber? A little. <laughs> so I, I, one day I'll get through a whole podcast without talking about Ken, but he, you know, he's, it hasn't happened yet. Um, but he, um, you know, he has this idea of holons. Yeah, I forget the, the name of your originator of this idea, but he you know, heavily leans on this idea. And the whole, you know, the idea of a holon is each thing is a whole composed of its own parts and a part of many larger holes. Mm -hmm. And that those two roles uh, evoke those two dimensions, right? The, the autonomy, and when I experience myself as a whole composed of my own parts, I experience my autonomy. When I experience myself as a member of many holes, I experience my interdependence. And that you, the collapsing, right, to either one of those ideas of, of what we are is pathological. And that the trick is to, and the developmental trick is to recognize the both end of that at increasingly. But the, which is a developmental task. Both hand is a developmental task. So our culture doesn't do that very well. <laughs> it does it up to like, you can do math, you can file your taxes, you can drive a car, whatever amount of integrating you need to be able to do to do that. Does that and, then, <laughs> and then you're on your own. Good yeah, luck to you. That's and, like, it. Yeah. yeah. So let me come back to the this yeah this distinction between witnessing and watching. Let me start with like a provocation and then I'll, and then and you can respond. What that reminded me of is this idea and I heard it from uh Terence McKenna and he is uh, he says he's quoting William Blake. I haven't been able to find William Blake saying it anywhere, but what Terence McKenna says, the William Blake says is an annoying sentence to say is uh nothing lasts but nothing is lost mm. and this idea of you know there's this idea of the akashic record which mm -hmm. i find like i don't know the history of that too much and i don't have dove deep into it but but this idea what what i take from that idea of nothing lasts but nothing is lost right because because you know in buddhism you have impermanence and yes. it's just like it just nothing lasts. Good, good luck to you. And it's yes. and that and you know and I think that you know people seem to get something out of that idea. For me, it's pretty dispiriting. What's the point of anything if not if it's just all you know? And there's nothing, but nothing is lost. Piece. I think what that gave me was the sense of that somehow there is a universal memory of of experience that's being accumulated mm -hmm. and then i think about stories like the egg do you know the story of the egg is uh, andy weir mm -mm. it's a riff on the idea that all of everybody is the same person being reborn over and over again to oh. accumulate a bunch of experience to then become some you know there's some yes. final Enlightened. stage right? yeah <laughs> right I, I, we're going to be birthed into a new universe where this so, so the world is an egg 
of and all of this experience is us learning how to be this super cosmic being. It's a lot of fun. The story is great. I'll I'll, I'll send it to you. But um, and it's very short, and I've spoiled the end. But you know, you're, it, 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 but it's 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 still just a lot of fun. Whether that's what's going on is for an egg, like that's a bigger question. But but just the idea that that we're accumulating this experience when we're when we're experiencing things, it's not this ephemeral. It it is ephemeral, but that it's also somehow leaving a mark in reality mm -hmm. that's what was kind of evoked in me when you talked about this difference between the witness and the watcher where the watcher isn't like the watcher is kind of it's a surface looking at a surface and there's no experience to lay down into the the kind of depths of reality where mm -hmm. the witness is actually taking it in in a way that lets it accumulate so i'll yeah. stop there but yeah yeah yeah, yeah, I would I would say so many things to say about it. I would say that the watcher is um is taking and the mm. witness is participating. Mm -hmm. And in order for that to be true, a certain amount in order to to watch there's a detachment, there's an objectification that is happening. Mm -hmm. You know, when I watch Netflix, it's totally for me. I'm watching it for entertainment. It, mm -hmm. There isn't a lot of, there's no reciprocity. I'm just taking. And when I'm witnessing, I'm acknowledging my importance in the process. I'm acknowledging that my, that my, and this doesn't necessarily have to be a conscious thing in order to really fulfill the role of the witness, mm. but the witness is participating in the process. And, and, and can I tell a short story? Please. Okay, because one of the ways I really, this, this came up, the, the very first reason I stumbled into this had to do with the memoir that I'm writing and really trying to understand my younger son's role in the process of, of the family's journey with his older brother, my older son's heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. And I could easily just write the story without him in it because he was just, he was peripheral. You know, he'd come in long enough to have an experience of disappointment or, you know, fear or whatever, but, but the kind of the primary character was Henry and his, his process. And I realized I'd written, you know, like a hundred thousand words and really hadn't written Simon into the whole equation. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was struggling with, well, so what is his role? And I recalled a uh, and I might've talked about it in our last conversation, I recalled the river trip that we took when years ago, when the kids were 11 and 13, and it was a river trip gone very, very wrong. And it was actually a really terrifying river trip mm. and because of a freak of weather kind of uh, convergence of extreme heat and drought that had happened five days before we were on the river and the water level dropped about 12 inches. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, this was on the Rogue River in Oregon. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, you'd think I, this was the first time we'd ever been on a river. So I was thinking, oh, it'll be even nicer and gentler. And in fact, it makes it more dangerous. It makes it ex exponentially more dangerous because rocks protrude and, and water is forced through narrower passageways. And so class two rapids became class four rapids. And wow. all of a sudden, and the Rogue River is a wilderness river. So once you put in, you can't pull out until you get to the bottom. So it's 38 miles of you have to get there. And you've arranged for the pullout is in the middle of Grants Pass. It's a wilderness area. You arrange for a van to come get you. If you're not there, the van's going to go. 
And then, you you know, you've got to wait some other, you've got to hitchhike for 40 miles over Grant's Pass with your raft on your back. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm dramatizing people who run the Rogue River are like, really? No, that's not. It sounds absolutely like- <laughs> terrifying to me. You're succeeding in making like, Let me just ask, how long are you expecting like a 38 mile? I've never done this. Yeah, it should take about four days. And we okay. got our sunscreen and we brought our swimsuits and we needed neoprene and we needed, because it because the temperature dropped, it snowed on us. It rained the entire time. And when it wasn't raining, it snowed. And, um, and we had never, we'd had two rafts and two kayaks and the kayaks actually couldn't be put on the rafts because the water level was so low that we had to actually have people in the kayaks. So that meant that Henry and I had to kayak most of those 38 miles because, because somebody had to, you know, I won't go into the details of why some of the other people couldn't. So, so we had this 38 mile soul initiation just deep dive into the underworld. It was one of the most really, I think, you know, right up there at the top of, of underworld journeys, which for me is saying quite a lot. And Simon at 11 couldn't be in a kayak. And so mm-hmm. he was just glued. Like sometimes he was strapped in mm-hmm. to the front of one of the rafts. And so I would be, you know, kayaking and getting tumbled around and Henry would be learning how to do this and, just, you know, figuring rapids out and, learning while we go. And there was Simon, who was just just above. He was just above, but he was right in front and he saw everything. Mm-hmm. And it would be easy to say, oh, he had it easy. Mm. And the, the thing that really dawned on me was that, in fact, he might have had it the hardest because he's not, you know, when you're in the rapids, your nervous system works with you to singularly mm-hmm. focus the next task. So you're not actually taking in the gestalt of the terror and mm-hmm. the fact that, okay, this is only mile 25 and we still have 13 more miles and now it's snowing and now it's, you know, now we've got these three more rapids and, and Simon was the one who was just above, but still in and was, you know, was the sacred witness. And the other thing that I realized about the sacred witness was in remembering, revisiting what would happen every night in our tent. You know, we'd be freezing cold. We'd get in our tent long after dark because we were paddling well into the night to try to make up for lost time. And we'd get into our wet tent with our wet sleeping bags. (laughs) And, And we would just huddle together and just, you know, there would be a time for us to ideally sleep. But also then Simon would start to just tell the story of the day. Mm. And Henry and I would relive the story of, a di- of the day in a way that our nervous systems would not have allowed us. You know, we had the story, the, the day was in fragments. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, it kind of got stamped at the end of the day with, we survived, end of story, yeah. day, you know, let's move on. And Simon would bring us back through the whole day and he would feel the feelings. So that was another role of the sacred witness is to actually feel not just see with his eyes, but feel the magnitude because nobody else is feeling the fullness of what's happening. And he's just up there watching it all and taking it all in. And then we'd get into our tent and Henry and I would be able to stitch the day back together to be able to say, oh, right, that happened. And yeah, then that happened. And we could celebrate things that had happened. Like you shot mm-hmm. the, you, you actually made it through those rapids, class five rapids. You've never been on a river before, let alone in a kayak. And Simon was the one who was really making that possible. 
you know, and then mm-hmm. there were tears and there were, and so from a trauma standpoint, it's phenomenal because what we did was just unravel the, the first stitches of trauma before they really could take hold. Mm-hmm. But also from a, from an underworld journey, we emerged with an intact journey, thanks to the witness. The thought I kept having was like of healing, right? Mm-hmm. Like of, that's, that, that storytelling is a healing, kind of literally a mending of your experience. Literally, yeah, literally a mending. Yep, because yeah, we each just had our kind of psyche, the pockets of our psyches stuffed with various jagged edged you know, little post-it notes. And Simon just would take them one at a time and put them in their proper place and attach the the somatic experience, the sensations, attach some emotions, attach a wider range of emotions. So yeah, I, I started to really piece together the the, the fact that had it not been, you know, had he been in another one of the rat, uh, duckies, you know, the one, another one of the kayaks, we would have had a very different experience. Like storytelling as healing mm-hmm. and the ways, right. And I, I often think of storytelling as healing being about reframing something or giving, giving someone kind of almost like putting the medicine in like with, with a spoonful of sugar, right? Like that you're that you're hiding the thing that you that you want to communicate within a story so that it kind of bypasses the rational mind or the skeptical mind and kind of gets back into the you know which you could say the story you just told could have that effect right like you you told a story about a a mode of healing and somebody listening to this might kind of digest that and and I'm probably spoiling it now by this by making it explicit, but I think everybody's gonna be okay. But you know, that model, which is interesting, but what I just got from that story is a much more direct understanding of like literally telling not some healing, helpful, magical story, but literally telling the story of your life <laughs> as a mode of healing. Yeah. And, and if in fact, you know, I think one of the things where I don't think we've really come through the front door here with the sacred witness with this piece of it, but one of the things we're hinting around at is that there is, there's a, there are, there are multiple layers of things happening when a person allows them, takes themselves seriously enough, really is seated in their belonging enough to grasp their responsibility as witness, to be a witness. And uh, to to really to be a participant in the unfolding or unraveling or whatever you want to call it of the world at this time, and 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 there's also a way in which coming back to that story that we refer. So that was an underworld in my in my vernacular. That was an underworld journey. We had mm-hmm. the opportunity to be to to meet our souls. And come away knowing something about ourselves that's intrinsic and essential mm-hmm. and, and required for the future, required mm-hmm. to fully participate in meaningful ways in the future, especially when the shit hits the fan. So years later, when Henry shows up and says, uh-oh, I'm addicted to heroin, I need your help, mm-hmm. that having had the reflection of Simon's witness of Henry shooting five class class five rapids 
in a kayak, never having been on a river before, uh, it became a way to understand, to start to make sense of and allow himself to be in the journey of his heroin addiction, which, you know, we could we could say is all sorts of allegory there on the on the rogue river and heroin addiction. And so there's a way in which being the sacred witness, really accepting the responsibility of the sacred witness and and harvesting what we harvest from this experience over here actually endows us with the capacity to be more fully in the next experience. And I also heard you saying something about the sacred witness, like with the watcher, it's a kind of totally self-centered, self-serving activity. Mm-hmm. You watch Netflix, and you're you're not you're not helping <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, by watching Netflix, even though you know sometimes you've got a good show. So I kind of also want to understand that difference of like the witness as being more selfless, not only like well, I'm witnessing in order to you know level up my abilities for the for yeah, what's right. coming down the line right? right not that that isn't in that but right. also that there's something more transpersonal more yeah kind of ecological about it mm-hmm. yeah yeah that there's so science is all about uh measuring uh, charting graphing measuring making predictable um, the, the what is happening in the world, making sense of what is happening in the world so we can say this is what's happening. And the witness gets to say the very same thing, but from an entirely different set of tools, using mm. an entirely different set of tools. And I do want to bring back in participant because to me, we might be able to come up with a better word, but I think one of the, one of the key distinctions is that the witness understands they are participating. Mm-hmm. And so now I can bring in another piece to this and, and I can bring in the program that I teach along with two other women called the Verdant Collective. Mm-hmm. And in the program, which works with women and women's uh, erotic embodiment and erotic intelligence, and we get up to some very intimate things, we do a thing called table work. And we do it this, a thing called table work in small pods of four, four participants and one instructor. And in the pod work on the tables, uh, each woman has a chance to explore some experience of her pleasure, her embodied pleasure, her arousal, mm. her which can look sexual and it can look non-sexual. It can look, it's entirely up to her. Um, oftentimes it does look sexual because our arousal has been so commandeered by the dominant culture that having an opportunity to reclaim it is really a powerful thing. And in these pods, each woman has a role. And so there's always a toucher and there's a receiver and that receiver is on the table. And then there's a rester, a woman who's just been on the table and then she gets to just rest and integrate. And there's a witness. Mm-hmm. And it's always, there's, there's always at least, you know, two or three women over the course of the weekend where we introduce the witness role where, you know, there's two or three minds that are blown. And usually Mm -hmm. it's more like 12 Mm -hmm. minds that are blown where women realize, you know, at first they could say, well, what's the difference between the witness and the rester? We're all just, we're just Mm going to sit here (laughs) in the room while everybody else does everything. And then very quickly after the first round, everyone kind of scratches their heads and says, oh. And so there's a, there's a, there's a responsibility. The witness is a very active an active participant, especially in a culture whose 
really primary strategy is to disappear experiences, is to disappear cultures, is to disappear um, experiences, is to disappear genders and sexes, is to disappear frameworks and languages, to be able to have an experience witnessed, like that happened. That's on the map. Mm. That's in me Mm -hmm. as well as you. I saw that. In some ways, it actually makes it real. It's making me think of in the uh, NLP training that that I did, which I adored. And don't don't let the words NLP fool you. It was really a, a very beautiful thing. They that was one of the model, and I think this comes from original NLP as well. Is there was a similar model of. But there was no rest. So you would you would do a session with somebody, you know, it's not hands on. It's you know, very different, proper kind of, you know, yes. <laughs> accountants, accountants in Marin learning how to do set, get, get more clients. Right. Yep. But still, but you would have those three roles. And and it is really interesting that witness role. Um, one of m- my experiences of having a witness is it. It's almost like there's a there's some metaphor here. As the practitioner, it gives me more consciousness to work with. That there's actually like I actually have like there's somehow I I it 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 provides a resource for me to be able to see more, experience more, uh, uh, move more energy because there's this this witness there, it's almost like they're lending their consciousness to the practitioner a little bit. Yes, which we could never measure. <laughs> but right. Right. Um, so are, we've already lost our mechanistic friends. But yeah, right, right. But and that's really the, the I think the, 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 the mysterious and enchanted question here is, what, what, what is the alchemy? Or what is the what is that particular biochemical thing that happens with the addition of the witness mm-hmm. and it and it is measurable and i mean so we could just to circle all the way back around to the eyes of coming onto the earth for the first time just a few days ago we could say that um it's a, it it has become an essential ecological role or an essential role in a well ecology to have the witness to have the eyes in all the ways that that we see, which includes feeling and smelling and sensing. And I've been preparing my next monologue, which is going to be about imagination, mm. uh, even more so, and having to kind of reclaim the word image, you know, which is I'm not the first person to I'm treading kind of trod ground, but just to be able to say like because people you know, I'm not a very visual person. Like I'm much more kinesthetic. I'm a kind of weird mishmash, but you know, people experience their interior life in a lot of different ways. And when you say an image to someone, it conjures up an image of a, of a visual image. And so to, to be able to say an image is a, is a, some multidimensional sensory object or, or, or subject or subjectivity. Yeah, so I just, that's a total tangent just to say I have a lot of sympathy with saying seeing in the broadest possible sense. Yeah, seeing in the broadest possible sense. And the kind of bleeding edge of this project that I'm working on for me is the witnessing of the internal landscape of images. Mm. And and saying like, there's actually, 
so much happening that's really fun and interesting and rich and like so specific. Like I had, I, I'm going to tell a story now. This is again, such a self-indulgent tangent, but I was, <laughs> I, I was on a hike uh, a couple of days ago and I, at one moment I just put my hands in the pockets of my jacket and I just had this feeling and I'm kind of strolling down the hill in the morning in the sunshine and I put my hands in my pocket and there was a, this kind of internal image of like, I felt a little bit like a hobbit. Yeah, I was and just going to say that's that. what I saw. <laughs> right. And that's what I saw. I kind of felt like Bilbo Baggins. And then I, and you know, and I also felt English, which I am. And there's something very English and the, and the hobbits are English, right? Mm -hmm. And there's something about like a, a gentleman in a waistcoat enjoying his morning constitutional in the hills, right? With his hands in his pockets. And so that's like the content, which was really just kind of charming and like, whether, what was that? But then the fact of like the specificity of that and how kind of sweet it was actually touched me. Yeah. Like, right. And it's not, and the this content, it matters not because of what it happened to be, but just because it was so specific. Yeah. And because it, it was evocative. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was evocative, and and yeah, it make I, I'm sure you know Diane de Prima's one of my favorite poems ever. It's her poem "Rant." The only war is the war against imagination. All other mm -hmm. wars are subsumed in that one, and I to and and the power of that, the power of 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 having a mind that is free enough to make associations that actually remind us that we're more than what we are in that given moment. I mean, you mm. know, we could say you were reminded of your ancestry and well, what do we know? You maybe were reminded of your more than human ancestry or your, you know, however we want to classify the hobbits who we don't right. have any idea, but in, in some way, I think one of our greatest tasks now is not to be mired down in the, in, in this kind of relentless, monologue of information that tells us that all we can hope for and really all we should want is some version of what we can actually see and hold and touch in front of us some version of what our neighbor already has or our you know our favorite people we follow on Instagram already are doing and and to be able to have those moments where our mind is free enough and our psyche is free enough to make associations that remind us that so much more is happening than that feels profound. Right. And like this deluge of information, which is selling a reduction to the reality, which is so banal that it is unarguable. <laughs> like, it's just the thing that like everybody can already like, yep, that's what's real is the thing that we can all just point to and say, that's definitely there. And it's like, well, okay, but that's just like the tip of the, that's the boring tip of the edge. And not that it's not incredible and beautiful in the mountains and the, the creatures and whatever, but like, yeah, that, that the thing that we can all agree is there is the surface of this vaster mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and in fact, to circle back around to belonging, I think that's actually where our belonging really, that's the food of our belonging. And, and yeah, there's a difference between going on a hike and like, oh, the trees and the sun and the trees and oh, that's a deer and oh, this is hard. And we're now we're going uphill and oh my goodness, what a day to be able to actually see the trees as, as 
again in this animist viewpoint that they framework that they that they are actually doing a whole thing and mm-hmm. we can see them and then we can we can imagine them and to mm-hmm. imagine them allows us to take into full view what they might be up to there's mm-hmm. the there's the image of the tree there's the what i can see of the tree in that three dimensional way and then there's the you know the letting our minds and really imagine what else is happening what it is that we're looking at and that's where the, that's what we belong to i don't believe we belong to the you know to the world in which we can say there's the pine and it's the genus blah 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 and it's related mm-hmm. to the blah 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 and that that we belong to the world in which we see the pine tree and the pine tree is its own person having an experience and in some small way we can actually imagine the experience i love that and i love the word that kept kind of auto completing in my mind as you were speaking was imagine the trees as holy yes Exactly. Yes. The thing I want to say about that as well is like, I think this the word imagination has been distorted so badly that like, because I think you could hear, someone could hear what you just said as, I'm going to make up something about the trees, which is not there. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I'm going to have a fantasy I just want to distinguish that from it's it's not that it that yes. it's like it's a imagination as perception. Yes, exactly. As deep perception. Yeah. And the and one of my teachers, well, I think plenty of people call distinguish imagination from deep imagination because imagination mm-hmm. has been so distorted to be this fantastical thing that I'm I'm just using my wild, you know, my wild capacity to make things up versus to slow down and actually, and actually be able to perceive what I can't just readily see. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. is, but that we could say is right there in front of me. It just makes the world delightful. Oh, isn't it? it I mean, it is, it allows us to, you know, it's so funny, people go to Avatar and they're like, oh my God, if only I could live in that world. That's so amazing. The men are so, wow. And the women are just in the, the, the world itself. And it's like, well, have you gone outside today? <laughs> you know, do we have to be blue in order for, you know, do things have to be phosphorescent in order for them to be magical? I mean, you could get some blue sunglasses. Right. right? Maybe that's what go. we need. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine, yeah, we, we'd get used to it pretty fast. It, it makes me think of, you know, I think I am, brief tangent of, uh, in Myers-Briggs, there's the typo, this typology and there's INFP, and kind of one of the qualities of the INFP is the INFP is, is idealistic mm. in the sense that they see, they can imagine a purer, better world. And, and it, it, it some, in some ways that fits me, but I, but there's a, I think my natural turn of mind is slightly critical. And I don't love that. Like I don't like I'm kind of picky and 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 critiquey and yeah, it's interesting and there's there's good things about it. But I have for a long time wanted to cultivate more appreciation, right? More of just like a a sense of gratitude and appreciation. Cause you know, because mentally I see the world as beautiful and you know, and and more and more in my heart as well, but not every day. And one of the things that has been helpful about that is you know, if I if, and and looking at people, right? Like with the avatar, like well, we could look around, and you can easily find the flaws in the people in your life or the people around you, and whether that's you know, 
aesthetically or kind Ooh. of like behaviorally whatever annoying thing they do and then but if you imagine that the alternative is just nothing at all i feel like there's something about that that evokes suddenly more appreciation like oh if my alternative is just like a a, a, a void then suddenly you know yeah. even the strip mall is beautiful i mean it's still not <laughs> ideal you're like hell up not this strip mall. <laughs> I mean, maybe not Where maybe that's we interesting <laughs> well that's interesting maybe not maybe that's the difference between the strip mall and 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 something that has some natural beauty is maybe i'd rather avoid actually right yeah i'd much right. more if, if the strip mall is more beautiful but right. you know but people definitely are yes yes absolutely yeah I, i'm thinking of I mean, <laughs> does modern day animism require that we see the strip mall as an ensouled being? Because I'm just a no. <laughs> I mean, that's where I just say no. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the thing that I wanted to ask you about that we didn't get to in, in our previous conversation is just to know something about your origin story mm. as like how you got this way, for, for however you want to take that. <laughs> I got this way, which, yeah. how much time do we have? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure, this, but is there anything maybe like, is there, was there a moment or was hmm. there like a decision? Was there something that, where you, you realized that you were going to follow a path that was maybe not the... The blessing and the burden of my origin story uh, is that I wasn't given an option about whether I would kind of um blend into the dominant culture whether i whether i would you know kids kids have in my experience our children have the task of discovering the difference between fitting in and belonging mm -hmm. and god help them because it's just vicious but you know that's also the task of the parents and any other uh, elders uh, adults in the in the child's life is to really help them make that that distinction and and choose the sometimes arduous and quite thankless task of belonging versus fitting in. And um, and I was never given that option because I was just so weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, really, my parents just totally fucked me over because I was like a nine year old who could sing all of Cole Porter and you know Gershwin and some I don't even remember what kids were singing the BG songs and I was singing Surrey with a fringe on top and and there's just no you know you know teenage culture is just brutal so that so I was not I didn't have the option to to be part of a clique and and of course that had a lot of pain and now I can just look back and think oh my god what a what a blessing that was but um, but really that's that's probably at the at the foundation of of everything I do is is just the the fact that I never had the experience. My my belonging was really unassailed and, and unassailable because that was all I had. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly had just made dear and deep and lifelong friends with the ecological world and mm -hmm. and and not so much with the human world. I, I, it wasn't until I went off to college at 16 that I, uh, that I was able to actually experience friendships with human beings. And so, um, and even then it was a bit rocky, as you could imagine at that age. But, um, but that, yeah, so that, that 
I always, you know, when I sit with clients uh, every day and we're really in this terrain all the time, it's such per- pertinent and, and critical terrain at this point. I have to remember that for a lot of people, we, we, the, we've, they've spent their first many, many, many years being shaped into the fitting in model. Mm-hmm. And that's just quite a ruthless shape, but, uh, and then, and, and coming out of that fitting in model to learn how to belong is just like, well, in some cases, it's just sort of like, well, how could you possibly ask that of somebody? But, but then, you know, so I had, um, there was very definitely a particular series of events that I, I actually just found myself talking about the other night for the first time in a long time in the Kirka, and we missed you in the community council Kirka, um, where we were invited to share an initiation story. And, and truly, I have so many, I'm so blessed to have so many, but the one that really felt like it was the kind of beginning of everything, the thing that really called me into into my, into my, it called me awake, I guess, is, was, was when I was 15. And I had, I had gone to prep school for about a hot minute and gotten kicked out. And, and got, sorry, the, the, there's a part of my brain that has to know where is all this happening? Like what? Oh the, yeah. Yeah. On the East yeah. coast, I went to okay. a prep school, uh, which was fabulous. I actually have to say the name of it. It, it was petty prep school. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perfect. I mean, it was P-D-D-I-E, I mean, to be fair. Um, uh-huh. But I went there because my sister was going to Princeton. My older sister was going to Princeton. And it was the only, and I was a crappy student. It was, I was the only school I could get into, mm-hmm. um, which was, it was like a prep school for for kind of the children, the ne'er-do-well children of Manhattan socialites. So it was like, we were all mm-hmm. just such misfits. Mm. And I ended up getting kicked out. Uh, very, very quickly, um, and getting the getting kicked out was a was a really marvelous story. Um, I had actually become an exotic dancer for a, at a very high class bar, uh, <laughs> a high class sort of now we would call it a strip joint, but it was very it was very theatrical, and all the Princeton professors would go there. But one night I went out onto stage, and and there was my history professor in the front row and you know and then it didn't go so well it could have gone all sorts of ways but it didn't it ended up going the way that i ended up in the dean's office with the history teacher sitting there and just sort of sitting on his pro you know just sitting on smug smugly and and she gave me the dean said well we can you can leave of your own accord and we'll put something else on your record and no one needs to know or we're going to kick you out and so uh, you know i was i chose the right the right thing so (laughs) So which, I, was, w- which was which was I'll leave I'll okay, I'll leave uh-huh. and and you'll you'll write whatever you need to write that isn't she was stripping at the age uh-huh. of fifteen uh-huh. which was an amazing experience and I it's its own story but um, well I also just want to notice that like I, the the history teacher not getting in trouble for attending a exactly exactly with fifteen year old dancers right it yeah, was well it was like well I wasn't I was I was. I was 18, (laughs) you know, that was the, you know, that was the thing, but obviously I'm not 18. I was 15, but I, as I went out there on stage and, and we're in the thing that was so amazing about this, this club is that we had, we were, we, we chose personas. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was like little Debbie next door and there was the Catholic schoolgirl, and there was all those things. But then there were these archetypal personas with these mm. extraordinary costumes to go along with it. So when I got hired, I was like, well, what the hell am I going to be? How am I going to choose this? And in, in, and I have no idea where this came from, um, into my head popped the black swan. Mm. And so this beautiful bonding moment of these women who knew that I was 15 and who said, Here's the, here are the rules. We're going to out you to the manager if, if you ever take your bottoms off, if you ever leave stage, if you ever do any of these things. You know, they really were mother, mothered me. Mm-hmm. And we spent a weekend together making these wings that were these full length black, just iridescent black green wings. And I had the bottoms and the top to go with it. And you know, it was just gorgeous. And so every night I would get to go make hundreds and hundreds of dollars in 1981 being the black swan on stage. And so, you know, I had a mask. So -hmm. when I walked out on stage that night and I looked down and there's my Weasley little history professor, I was like, you know, this could, who knows? We don't know. We have no idea. And it was three grueling days of just walking around campus like, okay, okay, okay. Until I got called in and... So yeah, so I got kicked out and went home, tail between my legs. Um, and and very shortly after that, my uh, this sort of the person who was my best friend, but I have to put quotes around that because we weren't there. I didn't really have friends there. She called me a few days later and said, oh my God, I just got kicked out too. Oh my God, it's so amazing. My parents are away for the weekend, come down and come down to my house just outside of New York City. I was in Connecticut and, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll just have an amazing weekend. And so I went down there and um, the, the kind of main afternoon and evening was gonna be this party, this small party. And we were gonna, you know, Coke was the big thing at that time, Coke and draining your parents' liquor cabinet. and and mm-hmm. maybe smoking cigarettes. And, and, uh, and instead, I mean, there was probably all of that too, but instead, and this just blows my mind because who knows who, I've never even heard of it. We did peyote. <laughs> and where did she get peyote in 1981 in, you know, and just outside of, in the New York City, Manhattan suburbs. But anyway, there we were. And, um, and, and it was a whole, you know, everyone else was just sort of rolling around on the carpet and doing all these sort of, wow, my hands and wow, your face and oh my God, wow, and making out. And, and I just sat on the stairs with the family dog who was this little, I don't know what it looked like, a little peekaboo or whatever they are, and had a whole other, you know, it was like a medicine journey. But at 15, what did I know about that? And, and at some point very early on, this beautiful grandmother came towards me, just sort of came through the sliding glass doors and across the shag carpet and came towards me and just reached her her ancient hand out and took my hand. And I had the dog tucked in my arm and we just went forever, you know, like out into the universe. And her mm-hmm. and she just pointed out all the all the miracles and all the ways in which this world was the most magnificent thing that had ever happened. And I'm a part of it. And you know, your life needs to be a reflection of this. And, you know, and, and then I got back on the Greyhound bus and I went home 
and mm-hmm. um, and went back into my home, my sterile home with a beautiful dad who hated his job and had no emotional expression and a mom who was a wild artist who was completely unrequited in all of the ways that a person could be unrequited in her life. And I lost my mind, mm. just lost my mind. It was just like, this can't be, these two things can't coexist. Mm-hmm. This world and that world mm-hmm. can't coexist. And so I lost my mind. And, and the upshot of that is that I ended up in this beautiful, divine, divine miracle of a series of events, ended up in the locked psychiatric unit of the hospital I was born in, Manchester wow. Community Hospital. Wow. And knew I didn't belong there and think I think I was there because I was describing this barren wasteland of a family. And my story is that this East Indian psychiatrist was like, we got to get her out of there. And so for, I don't even remember how long I was there. I would have lived there for the rest of my life if you'd asked me at 15 if I wanted to do that. I fell in love. I fell in love with these crazy people. <laughs> and it's the cliche all over again, because I just spent time just listening to stories and I would fall asleep at the foot of the bed of a different person every night, just listening to their stories. And they were the most sane, the most soulful. It's like, yeah, this is the only sane response to a world that is actually this world, the world the grandmother showed me, but has been turned into a world where people can be so damaged and brutalized and misunderstood and forgotten about, you know, that, that sort of one, two, three experience of, of going from being this archetypal stripper for a bunch of Princeton professors to taking a tour of the benevolent and magnificent universe with the grandmother to being in the, I mean, I feel like I was reborn in that hospital. My, my proper birth happened then and there it's so interesting because so many people's i know someone i, I it would it's a slightly presumptuous call me friend he's a sweet man but we you know we we took one class together for a few weeks he told a story in this class about having a a, a kind of mental breakdown at the age of 17 and asking to be committed like he actually asked his mm. parents he said i think i need to go to a hospital because I don't feel well, you know, Mm. and they, and they took him to, you know, this is in uh, California and they took him to some hospital in, in Berkeley. And as soon as the gates closed behind him and the, you know, the, the door locked, he suddenly realized this is the worst possible idea of my life and had a really (laughs) horrible time for however long he was there until he could get out. And I feel like that's the story of psychiatric hospitals in this country that I, you know, and in the West that I hear over and over again is the, is this, that they are not good places for, for healing and wellness. So it's just striking to me that you had this different experience. Yeah. I don't know that they were actually good places for healing and what, you know, to, 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 I don't know that any of the people who really needed to be there benefited from being there. And, and, and maybe we could say there was not as bad as where they came from. Mm-hmm. You know, there was not as bad as where they, that for, given all the options, this was the best option. Um, for me, you know, I would sit in the window in the main room and look out at the parking lot and look at the people coming and going and say, oh my God, I'm so grateful the door is locked. So those 
crazy people out there cannot get in here. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but I knew I didn't belong there. I mean, it wasn't, it was also a heartbreaking story. It was such a, it was a love story that ended in heartbreak because I knew I didn't belong there. I wasn't, Mm. I wasn't damaged like that. And Mm -hmm. I was the only person who wasn't on any meds. I, you know, I was, I I was, it was more like I was an undercover journalist, you know, it was. So what, like, how did, so you, you, you were seeing a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, let's just get you in here. No, I, 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 so I came home, got off the Greyhound bus when, when, after being, you know, in, in New York with my friend and came home and like three hours later, within three hours after being in that just sterile anaerobic environment, I just crawled under my desk and I made a little fort for myself, put a blanket over the, the desk and just started. And you're still kind of coming down off of peyote. Oh, I'm sure. Point. And I mean, I'm sure I did coke and I'm sure, you know, like I was just right. way too many things in my system. Um, but I'd had this numinous, like mm-hmm. mind blowing experience. And, uh, and so I just crawled under my desk and started to cry and didn't stop crying for four days until my father, mm-hmm. this giant first generation Swedish Estonian man just came in not knowing what the hell to do with me and just scooped me up in his arms and brought me to the hospital, to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there I was interviewed by a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist, I've, I've wanted to go back and get my records and I haven't done that yet, but the psychiatrist asked me a very interesting question. He said, have you ever thought about being dead? Not have you thought about suicide, but you know, if you ask a teenager, even a happy teenager, like a well-adjusted fitting in teenager, who's captain of the soccer team. If you say, have you ever thought about being dead? If they're honest with you, they're going to say, absolutely. You know, we're Mm -hmm. like existential times five at that age. So, so, you know, I probably answered yes. And at that point, that was really, you know, you just needed to prove that somebody was unreliable in terms of suicidal ideation. And, and that's why I think that, you know, after interviewing me and finding out the whole arc of what had just happened, he was just like, we need to, she can't be in her house, her house, actually, her home is not the place for her. We'll figure out where else to send her, but Mm. her home can't happen. So, you know, that's my story. Who knows what, what actually happened um, and what, what this psychiatrist thought, but I was absolutely not suicidal. Right. I, I was almost the opposite of suicidal. That question makes me think of Ramana Mahashi, who, you know, his, he, that's what happened to him at the age of 11 is he thought, he thought about being dead. Yes, <laughs> like I not so, but he thought about being dead and he had this huge transformative experience that, you know, like revealed him as this great sage. Um, so I just thought about that. Like, I don't know. It's, a, it's, it's probably a valuable thing to think about. Isn't um, it though? <laughs> yeah, but it's not that it's a, just a funny way of asking that question. So this whole story is making me think of my grandfather who was a psychiatric nurse in South Wales. Uh, that was his profession. He worked at a, at a mental institution. And I, and you know, this is, it's a joke that he would tell that I also, that I, I'm going to tell it, but I, you know, it's, I, I don't say this entirely lightly that he said, so many people told me that Jesus today, one of them must be right, (laughs) which, and you know, I I don't know. I, so there's something about that, that I, I also, there was a, my mom had a friend uh, who's a brother, he was Moroccan and he, and this is in the UK and he lived, he was a, 
English citizen or UK citizen. Mm. He lived in the UK and he was diagnosed as schizophrenic. Mm. And in the UK, he was treated as mentally ill and he was medicated and he was, you know, he had a doctor and he had to do all this stuff. And in Morocco, he was treated as a sage and people related to him as a, as a holy man who had insight. And he had this weird double life where he would go back and forth between the UK and this completely pathologizing view of what was going on. And then Morocco, where there was this kind of elevated view. And I don't know, I imagine that there was some wisdom in the way that the UK were treating him, like that it wasn't just kind of completely an arbitrary, cruel dismissal that there's some, but it's also, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the facts of it enough to say that. I think it's just my habit of mind is to imagine that there's some, there are good reasons for the things that people do, but yeah, I just think that that's also just like what a wild experience of life to have these two completely different reflections of who you are. Right. And I mean, and, and for somebody who's experiencing what we're calling schizophrenia, I could imagine that that could, that could be actually quite either very validating and very organizing to have these two, to have externally two very different ways Mm. the world is dealing with you. If that's your internal reality that you have multiple versions of reality happening at the Mm. same time and you never know which one you're going to be in to have the it could either just really mess you up or or somehow paradoxically like homeopathically maybe make things make sense (laughs) it's that's so interesting yeah like it like like that the world is holding some of the burden of that experience yeah yeah so were you at the end of the transformation story? I know yeah, that you, obviously you, you, asked me, you asked me what, if I could, I missed some version of if I, was there one moment or, you know, some, some time in my life that really seemed to, to set the stage for everything that I've done since then. And, and, and that, yeah, that, that is very much, I think the, the series of moments that I think of when I think of my, my really primary initiatory experience. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. One thing it reminded me of as well, there's, I, I want to, I will recommend this to you with no hope that you will read it because it's a, it's a series of comic books uh, called The Sandman uh, by Neil Gaiman. Who's, oh, um, mm-hmm. you, do you know Neil Gaiman? Oh, yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah, he, he wrote the uh, book of uh, Norse mythology. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his uh, early work is this uh, long run on this comic book called The Sandman. He kind of created it and, and did, you know, many, many years on it. And uh, I think it's his masterpiece. It's absolutely one of the most beautiful things. Um, yeah, and they just televised it. And it was, the TV show was fine. Oh. But but the, the comic book, you know, but it's it's one of those things that's, you know, very beautiful. And it's really interesting. It's about, um, it's about these kind of pre-godlike figures called the Endless. And so the main character is the, is the, the uh, the the kind of avatar of dreams mm. and so there's like dreams and there's death and mm. there's destiny they all begin with d there's desire despair it's kind of you know it's it's a comic book so there's these kind of weird gimmicks <laughs> but but it's it somehow has this like deep resonance it's very interesting and um and and so he deals because he's the main character lives in the is the king of dreams mm. and lives in this world of dreams and so he deals with all of these kind of archetypal forces. And there's a storyline in there where um, this Babylonian goddess Ishtar 
is uh is a is an exotic dancer in a strip club just in like a cheap dive bar right. strip club right just like and and that's where she is and she and it's and and she's just dancing like whatever you know normal dancing and then there's a a plot moment which means she has to dance this like sacred dance that elevates everybody in the the strip club into this kind of profound mm. you know uh like sacred state and so anyway i thought of that when you were talking about these archetypal figures that in the strip club of like how fun is that how much more fun than like the catholic school girl or something oh like that. my yeah. gosh it's so so much yeah so much more fun yeah and then to go back to petty and and sit along and i i think i was like co-captain of the varsity tennis team and we just crushed it that year and i was there long enough to get the gold <laughs> before i got sacked so Good. yeah the both end of the this wild world that we live in mm -hmm. <laughs> well i think that's a really um yeah i think that we 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 covered a lot of ground here is there anything <laughs> burning in you that hasn't been said you know what's what i'm sitting with now is is having had the conversation around the sacred witness and doubling and and then finishing it up with telling the story, telling my, a bit of my story has me realizing that, um, that in, in so many ways at that time in my life, I was really apprenticing to that, to that witness, that sacred witness role, just being in the kind of on the front lines of things on the front lines at the, at the, the exotic, uh, why well, I can't even remember what they would they called it in those days the exotic bar, and then also at the in the locked mental health unit the psychiatric mm -hmm. unit, just being this person who didn't really belong there wasn't really supposed to be there but was there, mm -hmm. and knew that my time was limited, and mm -hmm. just was gathering all the stories just gathering all the stories and in some way really. Um, watching the process, watching and listening and being and feeling in so many ways that just wouldn't, nobody else was doing that, that I, that I know of. Nobody else was doing that. This theme of belonging and that the, there were places that you didn't belong. Yeah. Like you were kind of finding yourself in these places you didn't belong. Yeah. And, and in some ways felt so much of my belonging, but the, but I didn't, maybe it is that I didn't, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't meant to stay there. I wasn't meant to stay there. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for taking some extra time oh, with me today. I really yes. appreciate it. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Robbie. It's just wonderful. It's been wonderful.